Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Sends a reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven above, We ask simply that you would cause your word to go forth and that you would cause it to accomplish all that you have set out for it to do. May it work in the hearts and minds of your people, drawing them ever closer and into your presence through the blood and merits of Christ. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. After uh, World War I ended, there was a certain phrase uh, that began to be used to describe that particular war that had been known as the Great War. Uh, It puts us in a absurd amount of emphasis on the goodness of man. You see, after World War I was over, instead of calling it the Great War, it came to be called was meant to be called the war to end all wars, right? Unfortunately, as we look back at that particular phrase, a phrase that declares that peace would last forever in the world, and that it's here now because of this particular war, we can't help but look back 100 years after the fact uh, to that particular phrase and scoff a little bit at the optimism And that war, this war, the Great War, it claimed the lives of millions of men and women. The war uh, that brought or was supposed to bring an end to the age of savagery and fighting between men and to bring about uh, the dawn of this new age of peace and that would last basically forever. But instead, instead of a dawn of a new age of complete and utter peace that lasts, instead, these last 100 years, we've had a history that is so war-torn that some have even called it the bloodiest century in the history of man. We've seen World War I and World War II, both with the body count rising well into the millions. We've witnessed a war in Korea, a cold war, 
Vietnam, the Gulf War, a war in Afghanistan and Iraq, and that's just the naming the wars of our particular country that we as a country have been involved in. That's not including the bloodshed in Africa or the Middle East or South America. It has been a bloody century. And if you were to try to say about any current war going on right now that this is the war that will end all wars, you would be mocked outright. No one would take you seriously. In fact, today, we've been so inundated with war after war after war that most of us have become numb to the horrors and the tragedies of war. The good news or the news that we hear on the radio and the TV and the internet about war, it's always bad. There is rarely good news in connection to all the fighting going on in the world. And yet, and yet, people of God, the war, though fighting, though division is part of the fabric of our broken world that we live for, isn't it true that we all long for peace. There is something within each of us that longs for peace, a peace that will last. Even if you're skeptical about the phrase, you know, the war to end all wars, or that peace is actually attainable on this side of glory, who among us desires war to continue forever? Who doesn't want peace to come and remain? Who doesn't want their family that has been divided by conflict to be reunited in peace? We all Desire peace in, the world, in this world. The question is, how does it come? Where is peace to be found? A man named Bracken once wrote, wherever there is sin, there will be a lack of peace. And if that's true, when will there indeed be peace on earth? When will we have peace in our homes and in our families? When will we quit striving against one another? When will this all come to an end? Our text this morning speaks of a lasting peace, one that will be felt by the world over. And that peace that is brought about, it comes indeed through the righteous branch, the righteous branch. As you come to Isaiah chapter 11, the chapter starts out and it begins with this beautiful imagery. You know, it's something you can picture very well about a branch shooting out from a dead stump for from the stump of Jesse, this shoot will come, and from his roots, he will bear fruit. And you may recognize that imagery here, because here Isaiah is speaking about the Messiah. It's a text that's often quoted, especially during Advent, in connection to a promised coming Messiah. Here is the Messiah before us. That is who Isaiah is describing and yet, you know, why refer to the Messiah as a branch? It seems like a, a, a very a, a unusual way to describe him. Why speak of him as little more than a shoot from a stump? Another way of translating this word is, uh, and, I, and I think a little more accurately, a, a small twig. A very small branch, one that could be easily broken and destroyed and the life squelched out of it. So how is this a good thing? As we come into the Advent season and even use this phrase, how is it a good thing to refer to the Messiah as a twig or a small branch? Why use this phrase? Notice, even here, as we're talking about the Messiah, this one that we know is to come from the son of David based on Samuel, or 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Why call this the stump of Jesse? 
and not the stump of David. What's going on here? Why make the connection back to a, a, a father of the greatest king in Israel and not the greatest king himself? Well, as you move through the book of Isaiah, in the context, Isaiah has been using forest imagery for a while. Throughout chapters 9 and 10, Isaiah has been speaking about forest and using the imagery of the woods to describe what's going on in Israel in this day and how Israel ought to understand what God is allowing to happen in their day. (coughs) Excuse me. Isaiah is prophesying during a time when Israel has been divided. It is a house divided against itself. They are divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. War has torn apart even God's own people who are divided against themselves. The people of God have descended further and further into sin and fighting against themselves. Peace is unknown to these people. It is an unknown concept. But because it's a divided kingdom, sometimes Isaiah will speak of Israel here. And he's speaking about the northern kingdom, or he may be speaking about the people of God as a whole. And when he says Judah, he is always referring to the southern kingdom. But as you come to this chapter, as you come to chapter 9, Isaiah says concerning Israel, a word that has been sent against Jacob. So he seems like he's dealing with all of God's people here, the whole house that is divided against themselves. And this word against Jacob comes, and it is not a good word. God sends his word, and it is against you. What Isaiah means by that is judgment is upon you. Anytime that something comes against another uh, object, there is opposition to it. God's people here in this context are in opposition to God. And so God says, in your pride and in your arrogance, you will be judged. Israel has said in their heart that though the great sycamore tree has been cut down, the cedars will take their place. And Isaiah is speaking here about, how the, um, about the kingdom, the Davidic kingdom that was great at one time, and now it is divided, and yet they still say in their heart, we will become great just as in former days, only this time we'll do it without God. Notice, Isaiah or Israel is trying to recapture the glory of old apart from God. And Isaiah makes the declaration in chapter 9, everyone in Israel is godless. According to Isaiah, that's the language he uses. The whole nation is turned against God. North and south are against God. Why use such strong, harsh language here about this people? Let me put it in this way so that you can understand how harsh it is. God has declared that everyone in his church is godless. Everyone. Not just Sam, not just Betty over there, not just George or Sue or Bob, but everyone is godless and has turned away from God. If you're a part of the church, you are included in this declaration of godlessness. This word of God, this holy word comes against God's sinful people coming to judge them and condemn them. It's very strong language here. Not a whole lot of caveats or ways to get out of this declaration of judgment against you. And so God declares his anger has not been turned away. It has not been dealt with. His hand is stretched out in judgment, he says. And he will cut down, again, notice the imagery of the forest, the palm branch and the reed. And now he will send forth fire 
into the forest to burn the briars and the thorns and the thickets of the forest, a small column of smoke goes up from this forest, forest that is burning and the land will be scorched. And the people of the land, it even says, will be as fuel for the fire. They will become firewood. The axe has been laid to the tree. Judgment is coming against God's people. You see here all the imagery of a forest being used. And God is declaring through the mouth of Isaiah that God's people are going to come under judgment and there won't be anything left. The once mighty forest will be cut down. The briars and thickets will be burned and the land will be barren. It will be scorched. This isn't just some abstract idea waiting for them. This is something that actually happens in history. There's a real physical dimension of this judgment that takes place. It won't be long after this prophecy of Isaiah when Assyria comes and carries northern Israel away after destroying and decimating the kingdom. In fact, in chapter 10, verse 5, Isaiah makes it explicit. Assyria will be the disciplining rod God uses against the godless. What a strange turn of events. What a strange thing to have happen. God's people. His very own ones who he has called up out of Egypt, who he has been dealing with for centuries, are called godless. And the very nations that are godless, Assyria, they are called to bring judgment upon this nation. This people has wandered away from their God. They have wandered away like lost sheep and have harbored a hatred against the very things of God. And yet God goes on in chapter 10, as he continues to push this uh, 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 imagery of the woods in the forest, he says of Assyria, they too will be judged for acting as though they are God. Verse 15, shall the axe boast over him who cuts with it? And speaking of Assyria, what I'm getting at, as you move through this text, and as you come to verse 33 of chapter 10, and as you're moving into chapter 11, God has kind of come to the point of clumping all of these judgments together. All of these people, both godless Israel and now Assyria, who has raised themselves up in pride against him, both these people. And he says, the Lord will lop the boughs of the tree or bows off the, of the tree off with great power. And the mighty will be brought low. The proud upon this earth will be judged, whether it is from Israel or elsewhere. The proud, the haughty of God, against God will be brought low. And then you come to chapter 11. And you hear these words, and God declares, but there shall come the smallest twig from the stump of Jesse, a branch with humble origins. He will come in the weakest form. He will come as a tiny shoot. And yet this small twig will be mightier than all the great forests or great peoples of the earth. And by it, by this twig, all God's enemies will be done away with. This branch, this twig will do battle and it will be victorious. And the Spirit of God will rest upon him. And we see this when Jesus comes indeed in the flesh and he comes out of the waters of his baptism. The Spirit descends upon him and rests upon him a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, of knowledge and power. It will all rest on this humble, tender branch, this one born in the most humble of conditions and circumstances imaginable. 
And yet he will come as a righteous judge. That is his task, you'll notice. He comes indeed to judge all the earth. But that's this Messiah's judgment, unlike all the judgments before, are perfect. He discerns the righteous without being deceived or uh, by words or by his eyes. He judges the heart. He knows the heart of men. And he will care for the poor and the weak and the meek in spirit, but with the wicked of the earth. He will strike them down with his, the rod of his mouth. His very word will go forth and separate the just from the unjust. His breath will slay the wicked, and he will do it all with a perfect, pure righteousness. His judgments will be perfect. Notice here in verse 5, though, he is, comes as this humble branch. He has humble origins, and he comes and he judges, and he makes uh, judgments upon the world. And it tells us that he will do battle in verse 5. The branch will do battle and will be victorious. The belt of righteousness that is to gird his waist and his loins. In ancient times, when a belt was worn by someone, they were about to wrestle or to fight. E.J. Young says that this took on a, a figurative meaning. It can, came to symbolize someone about to go to a struggle or a contest or a battle of some form. And so here is this righteous branch, and he is called to judge the earth, to judge between the poor in spirit and the proud against him, and he will now go to battle to do so. He will strike the wicked of the earth. It's a very strange, odd text, isn't it? And yet, as all of this is unfolding, as this humble branch comes, and he comes to judge, and he comes Indeed, in the form of a servant, and he prepares to do battle, we see something odd unfold. A war is waged upon the earth in order that peace may come. You see, to one extent, Woodrow Wilson was right when he said, you know, war to end all world wars. He recognized, oh, war must be waged in order to bring everlasting peace. And indeed, after the Messiah judges the earth, we see what happens here in verses 6 through 10, the peace of Zion. The peace of Zion. And as you come to verses 6 through 9, we have this strange scene unfold, at least one that is very foreign to anything we have ever seen upon this earth so far. I mean, there's not a single analogy used here to anything we have ever seen with our eyes. Once the Messiah comes, he will judge the wicked of the earth. And at the same time, he will deliver the righteous or the poor in spirit, the impressed. And those poor will live in peace that goes beyond all understanding. Peace that looks like this. A wolf will live with the lamb. They will live in the same place. And we scratch our heads and wonder what Isaiah is seeing here. Notice, nature is being reversed. There is something so profound about the Prince of Peace coming, about this Messiah that is coming, that the very nature of these animals that have had natural enmity against one another, for as long as any mind has recalled, they will be at peace. They will be changed. Their characteristics have changed. These wild animals have become domesticated. A leopard will sleep next to the young goat. A lion, which would normally devour anything that walks in its path that is edible, will stand next to the fatted calf. You know, a delicacy. Something, and yet not do anything to it. Something has so radically changed. This 
world and its nature itself that the lion will prefer grass to a tendered calf. Notice this, what Isaiah says about the bear. It will graze with the cow and their young will lie down together. It will be a lasting, permanent peace, one that even the children of these animals will experience. And a small child, a little child, would lead them. Again, we can't even grasp the depth of this scene fully, but think of it. When was the last time you let a, a small child lead a cow or a goat or a lamb? <laughs> Domestic animals can be a, a fool, uh, can make quite a fuss sometimes, and sometimes be too much for children. But here we see a small child leading the king of beasts. The nature of the beast will be so transformed, they will become so gentle. Nature itself will have become reversed. What a strange reality, but how far does it go? And how deeply is nature affected? How much is the world reversed? Well, it's changed so radically and deeply that even the oldest enemies will be reconciled. Notice this peace will obliterate even that enmity of old between serpent and and man, that enmity brought by the fall into the world and so long, so long ago by Adam. And Isaiah says the conflict between these two, between serpent and man, it will be forgotten. And the child who has just been weaned, an infant, will play with a cobra, putting his hand in the viper, den of a viper. I don't know how much you've picked up on here, people of God, but what Isaiah is declaring is that the fall and all of its effects will be radically undone. We experience now a creation that groans for redemption, as Romans 5 says, but it will groan no more. The curse upon mankind will be dealt with. This will have its effect even on all the creation the curse will be reversed completely by the Messiah and his kingdom will know an everlasting peace, one that will know no end, for they will not hurt nor destroy in all his holy mountain. It is an incomprehensible peace, something we've never experienced or seen the likes of in this day. The early church thought this passage was all about a return to paradise lost. Here they saw paradise Regained. Here is the world as it was just before the fall. They believed that these beasts really just picture a change in man himself. But Isaiah puts a lot of stress and emphasis on the animals themselves. It would be difficult to argue that this just is a picture of man. In other words, designed to compare us to them. If the world, if all these animals, if nature itself is so changed by Messiah's reign, that the feasts of the fields dwell in peace together, how much more so will be man changed by the Messiah? How much more will there be peace between brother and sister and father and mother? All the wars that we have lived through or remembered, they will be no more. There will be no more wars or rumors of wars because we will have peace with God, dwelling before the face of God in his holy mountain, Mount Zion itself. We will be in the very presence of God. That is what it means to dwell on Mount Zion, to dwell before the face of God, to be in his presence. The face of this one that is too holy, upon, or too holy to look upon without being obliterated. 
with those who are, are in sin. But in him, this Holy One, we will stand and dwell in his presence, and by his light we will see light. And all those who dwell on this new earth, they will know the Lord just as water covers the, earth, the sea. I love this analogy. In other words, just like water is wet, you can't separate these two. You know, uh, if it, would, it would be as impossible to separate the water from the sea as it is for those to dwell on the holy mountain, to dwell there without knowing the Lord. How can these things be? What do we make of a peace like this? Is it really too good to be true? One the world has never known and will never know until he comes again. What do we do with a prophecy like this? When will it all take place? Well, people of God, we've seen the first half of this prophecy fulfilled. The Messiah has come. And he has come as a very breakable, humble twing. He came in the lowest state, in the form of an infant in the house of David, but born not as a king, not as David's greater son, but born as poor as Jesse, David's father, was before him. He came in the form of this helpless babe. There is nothing more helpless in the world than a baby. Have you ever thought of that? This child, this one who would have been easily killed or slaughtered by just neglecting him. He came into this earth in the lowest of estates. The spirit of the Lord came and rested upon him that he might judge the world according to the very God that is sharper than any two-edged sword, a sword that came from his mouth and shows us our own failings so quickly. People of God, we don't have these things. We don't have everything together. We are a people born in sin, born into a world that is war-torn, that according to Isaiah, even within our own hearts, we are a godless people content to wallow in our strife and pride against one another. And yet the Messiah came so that by his death on a cross and resurrection, we who are united to Christ by faith might dwell in an everlasting peace. Not just a peace that lasts for a moment, but an everlasting peace because he satisfied the wrath of God against sins. We have been reconciled now to God and now have peace with God. There's no longer enmity with God through Christ Jesus. And we come now through him to dwell with God upon his holy mountain. A mountain that we could not even approach save for the blood of Christ. And this peace of God, it has already begun to be realized. I know it's odd to say that, but for those who are in Christ Jesus we have been given a peace that goes beyond all understanding, according to Philippians 4. We're no longer at enmity with God. There is a real peace that has been made between you and the Father. Nature itself, though, I mean, this is just the beginning of it, though. Nature itself will be fully reversed. This kingdom that brings peace, it will not be fully realized. It will not be completed until Christ comes again at an hour we do not know. But when he comes upon the clouds, oh dear people of God, he will take this sinful, fallen, cursed world. And just as the song says, no more will sins and sorrows flow, nor thorns infest the ground, for he comes to make his blessing known far as the curse is found. 
And truly nature itself will sing joy to the world for the Lord has come. For the curse has been undone in the blood of Christ. And every jot and tittle of this world, the sin-cursed and torn world, will pass away. And peace beyond all understanding will be found. May we long for that day, a day that Israel herself longed for. And we have seen it begun to be realized. The Messiah has come in the form of a child. And we long for the day when he returns and brings his kingdom of peace about. May we long for that day when we will not bicker with our wives or fight with our children or harm our friends. For we will not hurt or destroy in all his holy mountain. I want to close with these words from a scholar from the mid-1800s who said this. We read these words of Isaiah with grateful hearts, for we know that one day we too shall enjoy them only because of the work of Emmanuel, that one born from Jesse's root and who in the great battle of Calvary slew the wicked in that he gave himself as a ransom for sin. And to his name be all praise and honor and glory. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Lord God, we are a people of such little faith. We are a people that struggles to comprehend what it is that you declare, a world that is filled with peace beyond all understanding. Father, we long for this day, though. We pray that you would give us faith to realize that you have even already begun this good work in Christ Jesus and that this peace dwells within our hearts. We pray, Father, that you would continue to uh, help us to strive against the world, the flesh, and the devil, but that we would seek to be uh, built up in love and peace with one another, with our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, our fathers. Lord, we long for that day when we will see you face to face. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen.